Hello there, and welcome to Preprints in Motion, a podcast taking a deep dive in the fast-paced world of preprints. Join us as we sit down with early career researchers, discuss their latest preprint, and find out about their journey through the muddy marshes of academia. Hit that subscribe button, leave a rating, and find us on Twitter at MotionPod. Support us by heading over to buymeacoffee.com slash preprints. But for now, let's get into the show. It's hot and it's cold, it's yes and it's no, it's not Katy Perry, it's Chauvel talking about hot and cold fibrosis. And I promise to never do a terrible joke again. I've seen a talk by Yuri Alon once, and so I'm really excited to talk about what's actually like to work with him. But we'll get to that a bit later on. To start with, could you just give us your your name, who you are, and your kind of journey through science so far? Yeah. So uh, my name is Shoval Miara, and I'm uh, doing my PhD at the Weinstein Institute in Israel. I'm doing my PhD with uh, two mentors, essentially. I'm working in two different labs. The first lab I'm working with is the lab of uh, Eldad Zho, and the second lab is the lab of Uri Alon. So Eldad's lab is very much focused on finding new and novel mechanisms of cardiac regeneration. And uh, Uri's lab is actually focused on a completely different team. It's focused on systems biology and essentially trying to explain very complex biological systems with very simple uh, but mechanistic um, mathematical modeling. And we're going to be talking about two different cells today. So I think it might be good to just refresh everyone on what a fibroblast is and what a macrophage are. I love macrophages, by the way, favorite cell. Currently work on neutrophil, so I shouldn't really say that, but <laughs> macrophages are amazing. Um, but I've also used to work on fibroblasts. So I think just a bit of an overview of, of those two cells would also be quite helpful. Yeah. So um, I got very interested in uh, macrophages and fibroblasts because uh, during my master's, which I did only in the lab of Eldatsoko, uh, I worked on a macrophage project in, uh, in the context of cardiac regeneration. And then I got quite interested because I dove deep into the literature and kind of like understood how important these cells are in very basic biological processes, specifically in the context of uh, the heart and in a broader context. So just generally speaking, macrophages are the cells that are kind of like in charge of maintenance of the tissue. They are in charge of kind of like removing debris, like... uh, phagocytosing dead cells, removing uh, cells that are uh, that are disrupted. And actually, in recent years, people have discovered that they do much more than that. They can actually regulate the tissue in a much broader sense. They can secrete factors, they can facilitate different signals, and then by that, kind of like keep homeostasis going on. Fibroblasts are also very important fundamental tissue units. Essentially, the way that we look at it in the lab in general is that there are essentially four basic tissue units, like essentially four basic tissue cell types that are key to maintaining a tissue. And this is not something we made up. This is something that is uh, now very much fundamental. So essentially, Generally speaking, the way that uh, Ruslan Mechintov actually like to discuss about it is that there is one cell type who is like kind of like the ace of the tissue, right? Which you have like the hepatocyte or in the liver or the cardiomyocyte in the heart. And you have the fibroblast, 
which kind of like maintain the tissue structure by secreting different uh, types of uh, matrix proteins. You have the macrophages, which are very important for tissue homeostasis, and you have the endothelial cells, which kind of like bring the nutrients and all the goodies to the to this kind of neighborhoods. So this is how we look at it. This is like just, just like the very basic uh, way we try to look at the tissue. I love how complex macrophage biology is because they do seem to do just everything. They're just amazing cells. Yeah. And fibroblasts are also one of those cells that for a very, very long time were thought to be quite, I don't want to say boring, but almost boring because, you know, they, they were thought to have a singular role. They didn't really do much. But actually, there's a lot more to fibroblasts than we thought there were originally too, I thought there was. Another thing you do too of is you describe two types of fibrosis. Uh, you describe hot and cold fibrosis. So before we get into what you actually found, could you just give us a brief overview of what hot and cold fibrosis is? Because that was new to me. So hot and cold fibrosis are two, are essentially two parts of a new concept of looking at fibrosis. So generally speaking, if we want to try and understand why even look at fibrosis in a hot and cold kind of sense, uh, we need to go like a step back and essentially understand that fibrosis as a very as a very complex biological process essentially is composed of like a million factors, right? It has like secreted factors, thousands of secreted factors, multiple cell types, and essentially, it's a process that is developing throughout time. So up until now, up until this point, there hasn't been much success in developing treatment for fibrosis broadly, in a broad sense, not just in the heart, but in generally speaking, in, in many, many different tissues that suffer from fibrosis and don't regenerate. Specifically, in the context of the heart, fibrosis is extremely detrimental, and this is why we tried to target it. So the idea of hot and cold fibrosis came from the notion that we, in order to understand fibrosis, we need to kind of like simplify it. We need to understand the essence of fibrosis. And the lab of uh, Uri Alon and Ruslan Machintov together took uh, kind of like a step back in trying to understand fibrosis. So many people try to go forward and trying to add the different factors that are affecting it, the TGF betas and so on. And these two labs together actually tr decided to go backwards and try to understand what are the key elements that can actually control this kind of pathology. So what they were able to discover through very uh, elegant experiments is that there are two cell types that are key to fibrosis and that they have kind of like codependency on each other. These cell types are the macrophages and the fibroblasts, or specifically in the context of fibrosis, the activated fibroblasts or the myofibroblasts. So uh, after, a, after a work that was done by these two labs and that they can actually that establish that these two cell types can actually coexist and support each other by this reciprocal exchange of growth factors, then another work that was done by our current collaborator and a co-first author in my paper, Miri Adler, she actually established a mathematical model uh, kind of like a framework that actually predicts different types of injuries just by looking at the abundances of macrophages in myofibroblasts and the interaction between the two. So the way that they signal to each other. So if you have, for instance, an acute injury, 
and you have a regenerative tissue, like a scratch in the skin, then you are most likely to flow back to healing point. But then if you are uh, in a non-regenerative context now, and you have, for instance, an acute injury, you can go now to different types of fibrosis, which are defined by the, essentially by the abundance of these two cell types and the communication between them. So hot fibrosis is a point defined by these two cell types that are highly abundant, like high myofibroblasts, high macrophages, that support each other with a reciprocal exchange of growth factors. And cold fibrosis was defined as a point where macrophage no longer exists. They actually return to baseline levels. And now we have myofibroblasts supporting their own growth with, a, an, with an autocrine growth factor loop. Where did the names hot and cold come from? So I think it was very much inspired from like uh, the cancer field, right? So we have like hot and cold tumors, which are tumors with a lot of T cells and not a lot of T cells. So here we're talking about fibrosis with a lot of macrophages or with no macrophages. And I think that, that talking about taking a step back, I think that's one of the things that is kind of lost a lot in science these days. We, we're, Like you said, we're all about moving forward, right? And, and doing things that are just pushing and there's a lot of merit to just stepping back and looking at a whole field and looking at what you can do to sometimes it's just a matter of bringing things together but sometimes it is where you step back and you can do something like this where you come up with a cool new model and then you can explore it and then that moves the field forward but i'm i'm always surprised in science happening people don't take that step back they're so i understand it with phd students and postdocs because you are kind of what you do is so what you do it's your life you kind of you do get just absorbed by it but i'm always surprised when profs or pis just don't take that step back all that often and it helps so much could you talk a little bit about the mathematical model and not not the math part i will never understand the math part uh but more about how you need how... by the way <laughs> good <laughs> we're on the same wavelength but more about how you take that model and then apply it to the lab so how do you take some math and come up with experiments to prove that math right so this was the real challenge and actually the fun of this project right i was actually doing my master's with uh working on cardiac regeneration in a very much wet lab settings, doing hardcore in vivo experiments and so on, molecular work. And then an opportunity came up essentially to collaborate with Uri and working on this mathematical model on this theoretical thing and trying to actually see if it's, if it's real, right? Because in math, you have a lot of assumptions. And especially in systems biology, in any mathematical model that you have, you have a lot of assumptions there. And these assumptions, many of the times are actually, they are proper, they are in the right place because you have to make some assumptions in order to get to a solution that will help you kind of like understand a little bit biology. So I think that this was a lot of fun to try and find a way to kind of like prove or to test this biological concept, this this uh, cell circuit and the mathematical model that wraps it. And it came up with, a, in a conversation with uh, Uri and, and with Eldad, 
where we kind of like set the three of us together and Uri and Eldad were kind of like bouncing ideas from one another because they are very good friends, which is actually also very beneficial. So they were bouncing ideas about this mathematical model and they think that it could actually mean something and be important. And I was thinking in a very pragmatic way, how can we actually prove this? So the very basic essence of that model is the concentrations of these two cell types. Like how many are they in the tissue? What's the abundances of these two cell types? So we decided to kind of like design the the most simple experiment that we can to kind of like test if this is even possible that the model can describe reality and can describe reality for us means that it can, it needs to describe reality in an acute injury model for cardiac injury. So specifically for us, it was in the context of a heart attack or a myocardial infarction. So what we wanted to do, and this is more uh, my style of, kind of like how I like to do research, uh, not very much of Eldad style, actually. Um, I really like to use what's out there. So if there isn't someone who did an experiment, which I trust and published a data set, actually, I would rather use their, their data set than do the experiment myself. Of course, that many times I would do the experiment to validate it, to see that these results are correct. But this can actually give scientists so much leverage from the richness of what's already out there. So immediately what I did was to turn to the literature and see if there is any data set out there that can actually answer my question. And we came up with a data set with a really beautiful data set it came up in uh, 2020 in cell reports from uh, Elvira Forte and, and Associate, uh, which actually performed single cell RNA sequencing on cardiac interstitial cells after a heart attack. And she did it in a way that nobody else did before. She actually sampled these hearts at seven different time points after the injury. So she sampled these hearts from day zero from no injury to 28 days after the injury and at multiple time points. So there was no other data set like that that actually did that. And it was very important to use this kind of data set because essentially we wanted to see what is the outcome. So what happens when fibrosis is set? What, what happens when fibrosis is mature? And 28 days is kind of like the rough estimate of the field of like when fibrosis is mature in mice at least. So we approached this data set we reanalyzed it, we uh, took uh, these cells, we quantified them, and what we saw were, was very much surprising to us. We saw that immediately after an, a myocardial infarction, macrophage rise, kind of like representing inflammation, and then myofibrils follow. And as myofibrils follow, they peak at around a week after the injury. But then after that one week, this population of macrophage crashes and only myofibrils remain at that point. Essentially, only high myofibrils remain at that point, which is very important because at the normal heart, there, there are no myofibrils. There are no activated fibroblasts there because there is no need to generate a scar, to generate fibrosis. So this for us was very much interesting because at the time, we, we didn't really think that we will see 
called fibrosis. Actually, our hypothesis that perhaps we'll see that the scar remains inflamed and perhaps would be hot. So these were the first steps that we took. So I want to come back to the trusting data, but we'll come back to that later. I, as it happens, I had a chat today with my boss. One of the things he said, he said today that a lot of the reviewers are now commenting that the mouse MI models are getting quite negative reviews because apparently it's not very good. In terms of clinical relevance, at least, MI is usually a multi-hit thing. Unless you have a really severe catastrophic MI, it's normally you've had a few before it actually would kill you. And this leads me nicely actually into the, the models you've used because you used a pig model, which I want to talk about. So how do you right. feel about the, the, the MI models you've used? Do you feel like they're good models for backing up what you've seen in the maths and in what you would expect clinically? So the model that we use is, uh, I'll, I'll try to explain it in a little bit of detail, is essentially is based on uh, an acute injury that is actually permanent. So what we do there, we open the chest cavity and we identify the left anterior descending artery, the main coronary artery. After we identify the main coronary artery, we actually take a suture and we ligate it. We Which do that in a permanent way. A really hard surgery for anyone who's... I, I, <laughs> I do that on the mice. Bloody difficult. Insane surgery, very difficult. It takes very skilled individuals to actually do it. And it takes months and years to practice to actually become good uh, at doing that. So we do that and we actually, we ligate that coronary artery permanently and we don't release it. There is a different model, which is called ischemia reperfusion injury, where you ligate that, that, uh, that coronary artery and then you release it after 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour. That's my model. Depends on how much you want to do, right. And that model is actually is considered in many cases even more severe because you are actually suffering from this reperfusion injury where you get like the efflux of all the rust, all of the bad stuff flowing into that tissue now. So there are ups and downs to kind of like any model, right, that we use in lab. These models are representative of a specific aspect of what we are trying to learn. We are trying to learn what happens in cardiac injuries after acute ischemia. So this represents it well. But of course, there could be a lot of criticism about it because we're using adult animals, which is what we call adult animals after three months. These are essentially kind of like juvenile, healthy animals, young. These are not really like representative of the people that suffer from cardiac injuries, from heart attacks, right? We need like diabetic patients. We need like... Uh, people with obesity, with with uh, hypertension, with many other risk factors. So obviously this can be very much improved, but in terms of finding a model that can easy, relatively easily represent an acute ischemia, I think this model is doing a good job. But of course, and also in the lab, we are trying now to expand to these kind of models that would be more representative more representative so like adult animals diabetic and so on i mean that's that's a problem i always have in my research is we use mice exclusively and they're all 
relatively young mice because if you use a if you use an older mouse not only are they more likely to die during the surgery but it's just a harder surgery to do you've got more kind of to cut through to get to the heart and it's just right yeah you're causing, you're causing more damage right but you've also you used mice and pigs right i don't know if you did the pig research work but What's it like working with pigs? It's not something we've come across yet on the podcast, so I kind of want to talk about pig research. Oh, I my mean, God. I, I, I hate to disappoint you, John. <laughs> I, I didn't do the pig research. It was like it was a walk done together with collaborators in Germany, actually. It's not very easy to do pig walk mm. uh, in Israel. It's uh, Sometimes it's very expensive. So we have our collaborators in the in a tomb in, uh, in, in Munich. Uh, which did all the pig work. <laughs> Good opportunity yeah. to talk about collaborations, though, right? <laughs> Absolutely, but but I did hold the little pig pieces. Okay. So, <laughs> like little steaks. Because they're bigger, I imagine doing MI surgery on a pig is actually probably easier than on a mouse. Because the, th- the problem with mice is they're so small. Yeah. It's just, it's really difficult. Whereas at least with a pig, they're kind of, you know, they're a bit more our size. I, I can imagine the surgery is slightly easier. Um, right, and it turns would out, imagine that. <laughs> so I, I did a little bit of googling before, before this, and it turns out you can just buy pigs for research. I didn't, right. I didn't know that was a thing because I used to work on flies during my PhD, and you just buy flies in, and that always surprises people when I talk to people about fly research. But there you go, pigs. You can just buy pigs in. Who knew? <laughs> the other thing I've done in the past is during my masters, I worked on fi- trying to prove that fibroblasts exist as different subtypes. It's kind of been my thing in science for some reason. I've just fallen into the subtype thing, which is really annoying because it's really hard to do. Yeah. But we were trying to prove that fibrinus exists as sort of a pro and a anti-inflammatory subset or a pro-healing subset would be a better description for fibroblasts. So did you look at fibroblast subtypes? Did you try and sort of look at what the fibroblasts were doing, what kind of genes they were expressing? Or did you just look at like the classical things we would look at with fibroblasts? So this is, of course, very, very important, right? It's not only important to look at how many cells are there, uh, because this is a little bit too simplistic, right? We understand that if we look in the context of a tissue which is complex with complex cues, there will be kind of like a division of labor going on there, right? So like a fibroblast cannot do everything. A macrophage cannot do everything. So what we kind of like anticipate is that if we have a complex situation in a tissue, there will be some kind of division of labor between different subtypes of these cell types. So what we did, we actually utilized this very interesting uh, algorithm that was developed in Urialan's lab, which is called Pareto, uh, called PARTY essentially, and it's based on a Pareto analysis. So what PARTY knows to do is that it kind of like knows how to take single cell data, like single cell RNA-seq data, And then it knows to kind of like, it can actually expose this division of labor in a specific cell type if it exists. So if it exists, it's able to actually show you if you take a cell type and now this cell type is required for different functions. So this cell type cannot do all of these functions at once. Essentially, it's like a basic cellular dilemma, right? It has function A, B, C, D. It can do everything. And the gene expression cannot respond to all of these functions at once. So the, the hypothesis behind 
Pareto analysis is that essentially a cell type needs, a cell actually needs to kind of like decide what it wants to do. And in order to do that, it has to commit. And that commitment would come through this kind of like gene expression program that we would then be able to pick up through RNA sequencing and specifically in the single cell level, right? So if we have a cell type now, since it's a cell type, it's actually going to be organized on this continuum of gene expression in single cell data. So if it has two different functions, we will see through Pareto analysis that it actually forms a line, like a straight line, where the specialist cells would be at the edges. So they would have the most distinct kind of like gene expression. And the generalist cells, the cells that do a little bit of this and a little bit of that, would kind of like be in the middle. If we have three, three types of labors, it will be kind of like a triangle and so on. So we try to actually uh, employ this uh, Pareto analysis on the single cell data that we had. And what we were able to find is that when we looked at fibroblasts from day zero and day 28, so essentially at very, at like a homeostatic state and in, in the cold fibrosis setting, we saw that these cell type can actually form these four, four types of labors. They can actually organize themselves in four types of labors. One of them was extremely enriched only at day 28, only when cold fibrosis sets in. This function was highly associated with fibrosis and with different factors that can support fibrosis. So this is interesting, I think, this is more interesting if we look at it in the light of what we saw for macrophages, for instance. For macrophages, we saw the same thing. We saw four different functions, but then we saw that the distribution of the different functions for day zero and day 28 for homostasis, homostasis and cold fibrosis was similar. So essentially, the cell type of macrophages was kind of like responding to an injury but returning to its homeostatic uh, functions, while fibroblasts actually acquired a new function that is now persistent and is not coming back. It's not returning to homeostasis. This is what we think is actually a main driver here. See, fibroblasts, a lot more interesting than people think. Um, <laughs> so this is a downside to me knowing background to the research is that I ask a bunch of questions that I'm interested in. But about That's 25 awesome. minutes into the episode, um, could, could you give us an overview of your main findings? Right. What we wanted to do in this work, and we, I'm saying this only in the light of what we actually were able to, to accomplish, is that we tried to establish kind of like a new, a new way of looking at fibrosis. And we tried to do that by what we call the circuit to target approach. So essentially we have a cellular circuit that is anchored in a mathematical model and essentially is based on the interaction between these two cell types. And now we, we now show that this cellular circuit exists in specifically in the context of cardiac injury. And now we utilize this cellular circuit and what we know of that circuit and the mathematical model to find targets. So now we've done a lot of work in essentially establishing that we are looking at cold fibrosis after a myocardial infarction. But also when we felt confident enough that we are looking at cold fibrosis, 
we wanted to utilize what we know of the model to actually perturb fibrosis, to actually reduce fibrosis. So then we utilize what we know of that model and the fact that cold fibrosis is controlled by an autocrine loop of myofibroblast to actually try and look for this autocrine loop and essentially find what we think is a key factor in that autocrine loop and then target it. So I think that the way that this work actually uh, kind of like flows from a mathematical model all the way to a target and essentially protruding that target and reducing fibrosis in vivo is what we have accomplished here. And that, that was TIMP1. So right. could you talk a little bit about what TIMP1 is and what kind of role it has in this, this loop? Right. So to find the autocrine loop, we utilized a known algorithm called NicheNet, which was a very interesting paper in 2020 in uh, Nature Methods. And we looked at many different types of interactions between the different cell types, between the macrophage, the fibroblast, and the myofibroblast. So we saw that TIMP1 actually can, can be a very leading candidate for an autocrine growth factor. So the way that we saw it is that by looking at an early time point after the injury, a day three after the injury, when inflammation is like hustling and, and bustling in the tissue, and a late time point where we have cold fibrosis and no longer having inflammation, we were able to see that TIMP1, which is, uh, by the way, a known growth factor is actually very much existent there in its expression, specifically in myofibroblast. So its expression is very, very high in these two, in these cell types, in these two time points. And the niche net analysis that we did showed a very specific autocoin signaling pattern. So it had a prediction that TIMP1 can actually act in an autocoin manner on the same cell type. So when we saw that, we were very much interested about TIMP1, which is the long name is tissue inhibitor of metalloprotein as one. And it's an interesting factor because first of all, it's one of four members of the tissue inhibitor of metalloprotein as family. But what is maybe less known about it is, is that it's actually the weakest of all members in its MMP inhibition ability. And what's even more interesting is that it has a growth factor activity that was documented since 1997. So TIMP1 was very much interesting for us because when we looked in our spatial data, our spatial uh, omics data, we saw that its expression persists within the infarct zone, persists within the zone that will develop a scar. And we wanted to understand from that point whether it can actually be a growth factor for the cells that we are studying, the cardiac myofibroblast, because it, it wasn't documented previously. So we utilized some in vitro systems and we incubated primary cardiac myofibroblast with TIMP1 and with an inhibitor of TIMP1, a neutralizing antibody essentially. And what we saw is that these kind of treatments can either induced proliferation or reduced proliferation of this uh, of the cell type of cardiac myofibroblast, which suggested to us that it might actually act as a growth factor for these cells. So, so one of the things we ask everyone who comes on here is all about the preprinting process because we're funded by ASAP Bio, who are great. 
generally just my one of my research interests is in preprints and and how they used how beneficial they are to early career researchers in particular but how did you find the whole process of posting a preprint did you get any feedback from doing so other than us has anything else come out of that that would be something you wouldn't have gotten otherwise yeah so wow actually publishing a preprint is was such a fun experience uh, not the submission process, but uh, actually what happened afterwards in the submission process, I was a little bit uh, lost. Uh, even though they kind of picture it as kind of like very easy, somehow I found myself uh, lost a little bit. But actually, it was a lot of fun because through Twitter and through other kind of like platforms, we actually got a lot of response. And this response, uh, besides other people not coming from the preprint to us, uh, actually already facilitated some future experiments, some future work, some future collaborations. So we're already seeing our work being moved forward and translated forward. And this is a lot of fun. So actually, even a few days ago, I opened the preprint server and the bioarchive page and I actually saw that someone someone left a um, comment on my preprint, which was awesome. I didn't know it's possible, and the stuff that you wrote there was actually useful. So, yeah, I I actually enjoyed a lot this process. Comment comments are rare. Um, yeah, <laughs> a useful comment even rarer. They usually yeah. this is great, or it's yeah. it's just mean. Um, we yeah. we had some mean ones, but the, oh. so when I. I mean, you said about the sort of process. I find preprinting is the most exciting bit because you get excited because it's the first time you release your work to the world. And when I've done it, you get really excited because finally it's out there. Everyone's reading it. Everyone's responding to it. And like you said, you get sort of, so all the Twitter thing takes off. It's great. And then you publish it and it's just not quite the same. <laughs> it's just, yeah, okay, it's done now. Yeah. We can move on now. Whereas for me, at least, the preprinting part is the really exciting bit. Um. Yeah. I also asked that question because I think I can now announce it. I'm on the um, advisory board for Europe PMC, uh, specifically uh-huh. to talk about like preprints and early career researchers. So it's really good to get sort of an insight as to why people preprint and, and what kind of benefits they get from that. It's really great you got a comment because, like I said, it is rare. <laughs> um, but I want to talk about the Twitter stuff because yeah. certainly with this, part of that Twitter attention is absolutely going to be the fact that your boss made a song um yeah which not all of the pis do it tends to be a rare thing but anyone who knows yuri will know that he does write science songs the one of the first conference in fact no the first conference i ever went to as a scientist during my phd um it was a bscb conference in warwick miserable place but Really good conference, especially as like a first PhD conference. And Yuri was there giving a talk and he did a song, which is not what you expect <laughs> at a conference, yeah. to be honest. Um, what's, so what's it like working with somebody who's clearly got a very creative outlet as well as a scientific outlet? Because like, it does generate a lot right. of attention. It's great for you know, kind of promoting the work. And like from a sci-com perspective, you couldn't really ask for any more. But what's, it, what's he like to really work with let's get under the skin yeah. on that one because i'm sure people who know him <laughs> want to know that 
Yeah, so I gotta say that <laughs> that one of my favorite things in Uri's talks is actually watching the crowd when they when he starts uh, <laughs> singing, and then like watching the shock on their faces in the first moments, which actually kind of like mellow down and actually they they start enjoying it after like a couple of moments. So that, <laughs> this is always fun. And uh, yeah, working with uh, Uri and um, of course also with Eldad, who is also extremely creative, is a lot of fun. Uh, Uri is like uh, going around in, in the halls, playing his guitar and singing. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a myth. It's like a real thing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> putting this work in a song that kind of, that is connected to what we're doing, like Scar Tissue by the Chili Peppers, and discussing about the project of fibrosis uh, is also a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah, so I think that in in lab, uh, Uri really allows a lot of creativity and kind of like really um, kind of like encourages creativity. I, I've actually felt that a lot in like private meetings of like me and Uri and Eldad, we have this kind of like trio meetings where uh, ideas kind of like start to sparkle and, and go around. So these, this, that's absolutely a lot of fun. A lot of part, fun. part of the reason I asked that is because I always think the best scientists are those ones who are really, really good at communicating whether that be in song or just writing, like some of us do. Some of us are just writers. We can't all write amazing songs. Right. Um, but it, I think, like, the, the the whole penicillin thing is the really good example where, you know, the guy who first developed, discovered penicillin kind of missed the point on why it was really cool. And right. it took somebody else to really bring that across. But science without really good communication is worthless because if you can't communicate this amazing discovery you've made... Who cares? Nobody's going to read right. it. Nobody's going to pay attention to it. If I mean, you might even miss the whole point. So, I, I, yeah, I think it's really, really important part of science that we quite often, especially with hiring people, we kind of just skip over. We we don't count that, right? The only way we count that is if you write a good grant, which isn't necessarily right. that you're a good communicator. It just means you're able to put some good words down. Um. So circling back to the whole talk about single cell RNA-seq data, how do you feel about single cell RNA-seq as a technique? Because and again, I gave a journal club of, well, end of last year about the replication crisis in cancer. But uh, it was a paper by Brian, well, two papers by uh, Brian Nosek, um, who we should have on here. Um, but basically he found that a lot of the cancer research field is not very reproducible, which is a thing we can expand pretty much to any field of science. We, we know it's not generally very reproducible. Whole bunch of reasons why. But single cell RNA-seq is one of those things where if you want to be published in nature, you kind of have to do these days because it's the sexy technique that nature wants. But yeah. almost every paper I've seen with single cell RNA-seq, it's an N of one. And you've kind of got a question that. So where, where do you stand on this? Because you've used, yeah. I've never used it. You've used it. And one of the things you said is that you're excited about kind of the insights we get from this kind of data. So what are you expecting from that? Do you think it is this amazing right. thing? Or do you think it's just one of the kind of hot topics at the moment? I'll tell you what I think about it. I actually think that 
science kind of like goes in this kind of like hills, right? It has like these highs and lows, right? Like uh, it's not really highs and lows, but it kind of like has this period. Hmm. So I think that like previously it was like probably bulk RNA sequencing. And before that, it was like Affymetrics. And before that, it was like, I don't know, qPCR. I don't know. So right now we have single cell RNA seq data, which kind of like gives us a little bit more insight into the cells, into the identity of a single cell. And this data is very valuable, but it's not valuable if it's not reproducible because we, what we want to find is real biology. We don't want to identify, I don't know, uh, errors or just general noise. We want to find real biology. So I love single cell biology, but I think that it is, that it's been like beneficial outcomes and beneficial aspects are actually limited. And we need to recognize the limitation of this technique. So if we just do single cell biology and we don't do any perturbations afterwards or any experiments that would actually validate it, um, I don't really connect with this kind mm. of uh, works. I actually, I, I really like projects where you have an idea, you kind of like use single cell RNA sequencing as, a, as an hypothesis generator. And then you go and you actually run the perturbations and do all the experiments that could actually go and, and test and not really prove we can, because we can't prove anything, but actually test that your hypothesis is true, at least for now. I mean, that's what I like about what you've done. You've used it, but then you've done other stuff. Whereas right. the thing that really annoys me about single cell seek is it is one of those things where you can just do it and you can get in nature these days because you've done it and nothing more. You don't have to do any more. You just have to do some single cell RNA seq. It's not just an immunology thing either. It's across a lot of fields. Yeah. I think immunology is currently the big one that they're doing a lot um, because we're a bit late to everything apparently. I think that it's like a real struggle now in science because I think we're at, at a point where we are almost at the end of this phase. Hmm. We are almost at the end of like the single cell atlas generating phase. And we need to kind of like transition now into the understanding the new biology hmm. phase, right? Because we have these phases. So after we accumulate all this mountain of data, we now need to kind of like make sense out of it somehow. Hmm. So I, I really hope that journals and especially like you're saying, like big journals like Nature and Cell and Science would kind of like understand that this is where we need to go now. Like, be, okay, so we're generating a lot of data and this is great because this is a resource that we can use for many years now. But actually the next step is also very important. Like taking this data and making sense out of it, finding something new, finding new targets, finding new hits, finding new approaches. Uh, we have a lot of data and I think that only a fraction of it is actually being used and utilized in a meaningful way to society, to humanity. Yeah. Which leads us brilliantly into the next question I had. Because um, one of the things in the guest form that we send everyone, one of the things you yeah. said is that when we asked people about what could be changed in academia, your thing was hiring an assessment basically of, of academics. 
And this feeds really nicely into that because certainly from what I've seen, and I think that data would support this, is that all our current hiring practices are not really based on your ability to do the job of a PI. It's based on your ability to write a good grant and publish in high impact journals. I know people who genuinely have gotten fellowships based on nothing more than the fact that they publish in Nature, which is horribly, horribly wrong. I also know a lot of those people who aren't very good at running a lab, so shouldn't really have gotten it. But <laughs> in terms of hiring and assessment, one of the things she says is that we have this huge focus on basically where you publish, not the quality of what you publish. And I think as a technique, single cell RNAC currently is one of the things that really feeds into that. How do you think we can tackle that as an issue? Because it is a huge issue and I don't think there's an easy answer to it, but what, as someone who's thought about it, what, what do you think about in terms of yeah. fixing that problem? I'm not sure that there is like an easy solution, right? Because I mean, I could imagine I'm only at the middle of my PhD. So um, I can only imagine that if you're like in a, in a committee that tries to recruit someone new to a department. So now you, you get like, like a million applications all at once. And you somehow need to kind of like understand what's good, what's less good and what do you want to move on with or not. And I think that these decisions needs kind of like an easy readout. Hmm. Just like any biological experiments, right? You need an easy readout. And an easy readout is where these people published and when. But actually, I, I was thinking about that a little bit in the past few days. And perhaps another easy readout could be the number of citations that this paper acquired in a specific amount of time. And, and things like that, that can actually give you kind of like a number that says like good or bad or important or not, how many collaborations were actually facilitated based on this work or how many follow-ups uh, are done or are, like happening right now. I think that these are also like readouts that can be used in this kind of context. I mean, it's a, it's a big question, right? It's like a big problem now because... It's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like there's not an easy answer. And I agree that other metrics would be better but then there's problems with citation counts we know that men get cited more than women do mm. we know that if you're a big name you're going to get more right. cites anyway just because you're a big name not because you've done great science right i mean big labs in general right if you're in a big lab you have more money you have more people so you can do bigger research than someone in a small lab doesn't mean the person in the small lab's not as good as the person in the big lab just means they've got a different access to resources so it's right. not an easy answer and that one of the things people come to is suggesting things like the old metric factor, right? And the score you get from that. But then the people who are really good at social media get higher alt metric scores. Are right. they a good scientist? They might be, they might not be. Yeah. It, it is really difficult. I I think it's probably the answer in there somewhere is probably a combination of all those things. Which I'm sure somebody will yeah. eventually work into a new score that will be one number <laughs> that we'll all be judged by. Yeah. And I look forward to that. <laughs> Um, but that's probably the answer. I mean, one of the other suggestions we've had is that preprints are an answer to this, kind of an answer to this, which is it feeds into the notion that when you submit your CV to a hiring committee, you take out the journal names. So certainly in the UK and the EU, 
some of the funders have required and now having that as a requirement you've got to remove the journal names i think somewhere in the u.s is doing that as well as a trial interesting so, you know that that's a potential answer to it you know i know pe- i have a yeah. friend who will judge research based on the quality of the journal name and we know yeah. very clearly that's not a good judge of research quality right i think most of them are doing it like that right Exactly. And this is how just scientists judge research. We say it published in Nature yeah. and we kind of almost accept it more than if it was published in PLOS One. Yeah. But there's some really good stuff published in PLOS One. And the yeah. difference really is that PLOS One will publish more negative data. Nature won't publish negative data. Right. But I, I mean, as Elizabeth Bick would tell anyone, we know very clearly the whole thing is a mess. Moving on from that, my last question. Um, and this is something I've started thinking about a bit more recently to ask people we have on um, for a project I'm currently working on. Um, but what are your future plans? Because as it happens, I'm giving a journal club tomorrow at the time of recording. I'm not constantly <laughs> giving journal clubs. Um, I hate journal clubs. But I'm giving one tomorrow. And the paper I've selected is a survey of Australian STEM researchers. And basically it confirms what all the other research surveys do, which is research is a mess. Everyone's very depressed and upset and hates it all. Um, so what what are your future plans? Do you plan to stay in research or do you plan to move out into industry or, or something else differently? I'm very happy in academia. <laughs> like, I feel like I'm 100% accomplishing what I want in life and I'm 100% in my elements, in my where I'm supposed to be. So my plans are to finish my PhD and then go to do a postdoc and hopefully come back and uh, and open a lab myself. This this would be, I think, the most amazing thing. But having said that, I'm also trying to be very much realistic Hmm. about this because PI positions and especially PI positions in my country, in Israel, are very scarce like like the number of pi positions available every year is very low so i try to keep my feet on the ground and uh <laughs> not to fall fall in love in that dream uh, too much and keep my mind open to the possibility that i might move to industry uh, even though moving to industry isn't my first choice i think that uh it's a it's a reasonable choice and i I actually came across a lot of industry businesses that uh, actually do very good science in the past year a specific program i did so i think that uh, there is a lot of good science there and a lot of good opportunities there but i must say that 100 percent, my dream would be to be a pi and open my own lab I mean, it's good. It's always good to have that sort of awareness to have a backup yeah. plan. But that also very much yeah. fits with the paper I'm presenting tomorrow, which is uh, the so basically anyone who's PhD or sort of first po- early first postdoc is very positive about academia. And the longer you're a yeah. postdoc, the more negative you get, which is I guess not surprising because I think especially if you do a postdoc, most of us want to stay in academia. We want our own. I want my own lab. But the longer right. you're a postdoc, the more you realize that's just not going to happen for most, pe- <laughs> for most people. Like, I don't think I'm bad at my job. I th- I do a lot of speaking out and that causes trouble and makes things difficult. But I don't think I'm bad at my job. 
but I'm not going to get a PI position. That's just the reality. Don't bring of me down, Johnny. I well, you know, we, we, it's <laughs> it's my thing. It's what I've got to do. Um, but it is, you know, it is quite a. It's a very tough environment. But I think, it, you know, as long as you've got that awareness, I think that's the best approach to do. The thing, yeah. The thing I always tell people is, do not do a postdoc if you're not totally committed to becoming a PI because it is a waste of time. You're better off finishing your PhD, going off, and then you start your career and you have your life. Whereas if you do a postdoc, you end up in the position that I'm now in, where basically you've got to do a career switch and that usually comes with a pay cut, which isn't great. Not that pay, no, postdocs don't get paid a lot, but still get a pay yeah. cut. Um, yeah. Only for about a year. But I mean, that, that as long as people have that awareness, that's what, that's what I try and push because it is really good. And you know what? People, people make it all the time. It's right. As long as you write enough fellowships, eventually you will get one funded because I think we're all really good. Certainly if you're planning to stay in academia, you tend to be one of the people who are just really good at science and at being an academic. And you do give it long enough, we'd all make it. Just as I think, you know, certain number of postdocs, eventually you, you, you reach a cut off <laughs> point. But I, I mean, you know, you know more than I do. So you definitely, I'd, I'd say you're on the right track. I think that's it. I did I hear some whole stories about like eight year postdocs, stuff like that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm trying to be it's positive. the, it's, it's the wordings they use. Like the fact that, so there's an eLife, some guy wrote a, a piece on eLife a while ago about being one of those like long-term postdocs. He had no interest in running a lab. Mm. And this is absolutely a reflection on the academic community that we all need to do better at. But, one of the things he said in that is that as a postdoc, doesn't matter how experienced you are, you're always viewed differently to a PI. And that PI, you know, someone who's done a postdoc for like 10 years, the PI is going to be younger than that postdoc is. But because yeah. someone's got a fellowship, suddenly they're somehow better. They know more, they're more intelligent. There's, there's something more there. And I think as academ academics, we forget that it's not about being amazing, it's luck. You don't get a fellowship or a grant because you're amazing. Like, the, so many of them that are submitted reach that threshold. Yeah. You get it because you're lucky, because the committee liked your grant at that time. Because it just so happened you got a slightly higher score than somebody else. Even though, if the money was there, they would have all been funded. I mean, this, by all means, there's some people who submit just some shit and should not ever be working in academia. And they know who they are and they leave, <laughs> usually. But, you know, we are all great. And I think we, we kind of jumble that up with when you say it's a luck, people get a bit offensive, offended because nobody wants to say, oh, yeah, my career was luck, not because I'm great. I think they forget that we're all great and the people who leave are great. They're amazing academics. They're amazing scientists. It's just they didn't have that little bit extra they needed to, to carry on in academia. Yeah. 100% there is a lot of luck in success in academia, right? Like you can be doing the most amazing project, but if you find the wrong target or like yeah. a target that is actually the right target, but not interesting enough, then what what what's happening what's going to happen yeah. maybe you will get um less like uh, impactful paper and so on 
So absolutely, luck is a huge component here. So I cross my fingers and knock on wood like every day and pray and pray to the gods of science that uh, just my take up, is going to be... Take up every religion. Yeah. I mean, I imagine your day is going to be very busy if you do that, but take up every religion. I pray to all gods. Pray to them all. And that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed listening, then hit that subscribe button to get the latest updates straight to wherever it is you're listening. Don't forget to rate us on Spotify or Apple and follow us on Twitter at MotionPod. You can find links to things we've just discussed on our website, preprintsinmotion.com. If you'd like to tell us what you think, then send an email, shout at us on Twitter, or shout at us if you see us walking down the street. This has been a JMJ production, generously supported by our friends at ASAP Bio. Until next time, have a good week. Where do I find out about the different bioarchived licenses? This CC, BY, CDXY nonsense is driving me nuts. ASAP Bio have a resource for that. Ugh, that's your answer to everything. That's because they have everything you need to know about preprints. Sure, they probably have the basics, like info on the preprint servers, but what else is there? There's so much more. Looking to post a preprint, but not sure what different journal policies are? They have a collection to help you out with that. There are meetings around preprints and associated services. If you want to know how preprint adoption has changed over time, there's even a page on that. And COVID? They have a big section on preprints and the pandemic, plus some really cool infographics for communicating preprints. And university policies? Surely they don't have that. They collect uni policies where possible. Okay, okay, they do sound pretty impressive, but is it not a bit of an echo chamber? It can be, but ASAP Bio also engage with people who don't love preprints and have concerns. So we had an excellent discussion on this very topic a couple of months ago. Oh, is there anything ASAP Bio don't do? Honestly, no, they're so nice over there. They were so quick to jump in and support this show. It's your one-stop shop for info on preprints and open science initiatives. So head over to asapbio.org to learn more and subscribe to their newsletter for the latest in preprint news. If you want a deeper dive into the world of preprints, then look out for the next recruitment of ASAP Bio Fellows.